This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Science Weekly is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly. A brain scientist and a philosopher walk into a bar. No, it's not the start of a joke, but the beginning of a 25-year wager about one of the fundamentals of what it means to be human. That's when Christoph made the bet. He said, I think it'll happen in 25 years. Within 25 years, we'll discover the neural correlate of consciousness, and this will be clear. Consciousness defines our whole experience of life, but understanding what it is and how it works has vexed philosophers, scientists and linguists for thousands of years. And last month, the neuroscientist Christoph Koch had to concede that the prediction he had made in 1998 had not come true. The prize for his friend, the philosopher David Chalmers? I delivered a box, a wooden box, with six bottles of fine wine, one of which we consumed that evening. So with the dust settled and a bottle of fine wine shared, are we any closer to understanding the basis of consciousness than we were 25 years ago? And what does science gain when experts from different fields get together in a bar? I'm The Guardian science editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. And then there was a Sunday Gamarkin article that you wrote. That's right. They ended up inviting me to uh, to write a piece. And they said, well, can we really have this philosopher going crazy in there without any science? So, Listening yeah, to Christoph and David chat like old mates, it was easy to forget they come from very different disciplines. Before we got started, I wanted to understand what each of them mean when they talk about consciousness. 
Christoph Koch, you're meritorious investigator at the Allen Institute for Brain Science in Seattle, Washington. And you're here to talk about conceding defeat on a bet you made 25 years ago. But before we begin, can you give me a really simple definition of what we mean when we talk about consciousness? I hear your voice. That's a voice inside my head. I look at my computer. I look forward to this interview. Those are three distinct subjective conscious experiences. They come with this feeling and explaining how these feelings, these sensations, this experience, this subjectivity, how that comes into the world. That is what consciousness is. David Chalmers, you're a philosopher and co-director of the Center for Mind, Brain and Consciousness at New York University. Have you got anything to add? Is that exactly the same way that you would phrase this? Pretty much. I would define consciousness simply as subjective experience. The subjective experience of perceiving, of feeling, of thinking. For each of these states, you know, there's something it's like to be a conscious being, something it's like from the inside, subjectively. And that's like a multi-track movie in the mind, which includes sounds and images and feelings. All of that subjective experience is what I refer to as consciousness. Christoph, you proposed the bet originally. So take me back 25 years. Where were you? How did this bet come about? And what were the terms? Well, technically, we were in Bremen in a pub in Bremen, Germany, attending a conference on consciousness. At the time, I'd worked with the British molecular biologist, Francis Crick, and we'd advocated for this empirical program of looking for the neuronal footprints of consciousness to focus away from the philosophical debates and look for the mechanisms in the brain that are necessary to have one of these subjective experiences. So what are the, the mechanisms that are needed for me to see or to hear or to feel pain or to feel pleasure? So tell me how the bet came about. Yeah, well, we were sitting in a pub after dinner. We'd just been in a panel discussion where I gave a talk about what is a neural correlate of consciousness. And Christoph is very enthusiastic about the whole program. The thought that we might sometime quite soon be able to discover those processes in the brain that correlate with consciousness. Um, I said, well, maybe it'll happen in the fullness of time, but possibly not anytime soon. And that's when Christoph made the bet. He said, I think it'll happen in 25 years. Within 25 years, we'll discover the neural correlate of consciousness. It'll be something fairly simple in the brain, a certain set of neurons defined by a certain set of properties, I said, ah, I don't think it's going to happen that fast. But it's quite important that this bet was not about the hard problem. It wasn't about an explanation of consciousness. That, I think, both of us think may well take more than 25 years. This bet was about just finding neural correlates of consciousness, bits of the brain which are roughly bits of the brain which are active when your consciousness is active in various respects. Right. So if it's not the hard problem explaining what consciousness is, why should we care about this more technical question of finding the neural correlates of consciousness, or NCCs? Finding these neural correlates has all sorts of practical consequences and clinical consequences. For instance, if you had the, this neural correlate of consciousness, you could find in patients that are behaviorally unresponsive, you could say, well, the patient can't talk because they're so injured or they can't move, but are they still conscious? Do they still have the correlates? You can track when do these neural correlates first occur in development. Is it in the second term fetus, in the third term? Is it in a newborn? You can track it in, in other animals. So clinically, 
Um, and practically having these college would sort of signal a lot of progress. So you made this bet, and then you came up with an interesting way to try and solve it either way. How did you go about that? Typically what people do, they believe in one particular theory, and then they only publish on that theory, and lo and behold, every experiment they do seems to support that theory, and the same for the other theory. So we got together in 2018 in Seattle and said, let's design a set of experiments where if the outcome goes this way, it supports one theory of consciousness, and if that the experimental outcomes goes the other way, then it supports the other theory of consciousness. And this involved these two theories, integrated information theory and global neuronal workspace theory. So you set out to test two of the most popular theories about consciousness, one called IIT, or integrated information theory, and another called GWT, global neuronal workspace theory. They're obviously very complex, but could you help us understand what these two theories are about? Integrated information theory tends to tie consciousness to sensory processes. Um, its neural correlates are largely located in the back of the brain, where the sensory areas are, while global workspace theory ties consciousness much more closely to thinking and cognition. It says the neural correlates of consciousness are in the, uh, the front of the brain, uh, which is where you find processes devoted to, to thinking, to reasoning, to attention. Global workspace theory thinks that consciousness is actually very limited and sparse, just consisting of a few bits of information one's attending to at a given time. And this contrast between rich sensory theories that put consciousness in the back of the brain and sparse cognitive theories that put consciousness in the front of the brain has been very central in the last you know decade or two of research on consciousness. Tell me how these two theories then were tested. In 250 subjects, so that's a very large number of volunteers that people recruited in 12 different labs across the planet, and it involved very different uh, type of instruments. There was functional brain imaging, EG, where you put electrodes onto the head of these volunteers, magnetic encephalography, where you can measure the magnetic field associated with neural activity, and then also we also work with uh, patients that have implanted electrode to monitor their propensity for having seizures. This allows you to put electrode very close on top of the brain, allows us very high access to very high quality signals. And you created a series of tests to pit these theories against each other, looking at which parts of the brain reacted to stimuli for how long and whether there was a simultaneous reaction throughout the whole brain. What did those tests find? So they were somewhat mixed. It's a two to one for IIT versus GNW. It's more complicated than that because this is just the first uh, evaluation of the first experiment. There's a second experiment, plus there are more experiments being carried out in, in animals. And do you expect that you will end up with one of these theories that you're testing, one of these hypotheses that you're testing being bang on? Or do you think you're always going to find, yes, it satisfies some criteria, not others. It passed some tests, not others. This will just lead to a well-informed rethink and reconstitution of some new kind of theory. So 
I have to admit at this point that I've worked with integrated information theory for many years now. So, you know, I'm obviously biased, but probably what's going to happen, both theories have to, because there's some very challenging data that's not out there. And how do we explain the fact that neither theory sort of passed all tests? And do we have to change something fundamental about the theories? Or is it just more like a practical problem? Well, we didn't have enough electrodes in this location, or we didn't quite look at it in the right frequency range. And so this has to unfold over the next years. Look, these are very complicated theories. You know, the brain is the most complex piece of highly active matter in the known universe. So, you know, this is not going to be just, you know, simple. Yes, it's perfectly true. And that's perfectly invalid. It's going to be more complex than that. But it's a very exciting process going through tracking down the footprints of consciousness to their layer somewhere in the brain. I'm interested in the fact, just to move on a little, that one of you is a neuroscientist, the other a philosopher. How do your different disciplines inform the way you go at this question? David, maybe you first. Philosophers like to take the big picture on some of these questions. Look at the experimental results which are coming out of neuroscience, psychology, and so on, and say, what are they actually telling us about consciousness? One thing we actually find here is there are actually quite deep philosophical disagreement between the, uh, the scientists involved in putting forward these theories and even in interpreting the results of experiments. For example, some scientists assume that a certain stimulus is conscious, that it can be seen that as part of their consciousness. And say a rich theorist, like say an integrated information theorist, will say for sure that thing is part of our conscious experience. At the same time, the global workspace theorist might say no, that's not part of our sparse conscious experience. And in fact, this is a disagreement between two fundamentally different philosophical ways of thinking about consciousness. So I think the science here is kind of strewn through with philosophical assumptions. It's absolutely essential to have both philosophers combined with empirical scientists, because philosophers ask questions of a fundamental nature regarding, you know, for instance, what exists. How do I know that the stimulus right in front of me, you know, is conscious or not conscious? Scientists will either assume, rightly or wrongly, to be obvious one way or obvious the other way. So these sort of fundamental questions that scientists usually rush under the carpet, philosophers ask. So it's really, it's really important. This is one of the most challenging problems that has bedeviled humanity since, you know, organized thought, at least in the Western tradition, 2,500 years. And so we need scholars from many different disciplines, psychologists, doctors, scientists, and philosophers to help us make understand of this problem that's, after all, at the very center of our life. What is consciousness? Where does my consciousness come from? Are you going to make another bet? Do you think, are you confident that, you know, you will have a neural basis for consciousness in X many years from today? Of course, being ever optimist about the progress of my sciences, neuroscience, I double down. I said, Dave, I challenge you again. In 25 years from now, I can't you know, wait much longer given my age. In 25 years from now, the community will have found the neural college of consciousness, and there will be some sort of consensus about where they are and what the nature of this of these neural college are. And David, were you happy to take the bet this time? A bit more, bit trickier this time, no? Sure. Giving Christoph another 25 years gives the science a lot more time to figure this stuff out. Still, I suspect, I think it's still a pretty tough challenge. If we get there by 2048, I'd be absolutely delighted to concede. I suspect that these problems 
both understanding the brain and understanding consciousness well enough to figure out the brain basis of consciousness. I suspect that's a hard enough problem that we won't have figured it out by 2048. But if I'm wrong, fantastic. I'll be happy to concede. Well, look, we wish you huge luck from here. And thank you, both of you, for coming on and explaining it all. Are you committing to having us again in 25 years from now? Absolutely. Okay, let's do it. Christoph will be 92. I will be 82. I don't know how old you will be, but let's all get together in 2048. I'll be amazed if I make it, but let's try. But teleportation. All right. Take care. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers, guys. Thanks again to Christoph Koch and David Chalmers. And that's all from us this week. The producer was Josh and Chana, with additional production support from Hannah Abraham and Kunal Patel. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku, and the executive producer is Ellie Bury. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.